we continue our series simply titled Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. If it was good enough for the Bible translators, it's good enough for us. So Acts is where we'll be. This is our third installment, and chapter 2 is where we will start. We'll go from uh, verses 1 through 13, by God's grace, this morning. A couple of things uh, going on. If you don't need a Bible, by the way, you raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. I think some folks would be ready to do that. All right. A couple of things we want you to know about uh, as we're in the midst of a transition this summer. We have another transition uh, going on in that Monroe got a wonderful grant to do a lot of construction this summer. And so we say thanks be to God. We love when public schools are are afforded these opportunities to make important changes for their student bodies and communities. This just means that we have a couple of distinct things that are happening. One, the parking lot out there that many of you enjoy will be the staging ground for construction. And so I would encourage you to not try to find a way to park your car there. It will be closed off, and so it will be for your joy and your insurance's joy to stay away from that particular parking lot. And I also want to remind us then that the parking lot that I believe is to my back at this point over by the playground is reserved for families. I know some of you, it's going to be hot right? But you were able to go to Starbucks in the morning and not have to unbuckle four kids to go inside to get that drink. And so you can walk a little bit further. My wife and other moms and dads, thank you for that. There's only a number of spots there. Also be on alert. We, have, we, we don't know where, where else construction will be parking. But if you're a partner and a member here at our church, we would encourage you to say, I can walk a little bit further so that those who are new or those who have not yet been a part of our church very long, can park as close as possible. So those construction things are going on. We had a meeting this morning um, preparing for any emergencies as if like we have to not meet here or something like that. But if you have not heard from us, it is Sundays as usual. We'll be meeting right here just with a few less parking spots. But we're really excited about what this means for Monroe, what this means for this neighborhood, what this means for the further development of these kids getting a good education here. Also, for a transition with Church in the Square, for those of you uh, who don't know, I hope most of you do, we're becoming an autonomous church September 1st, becoming no longer Park Community Church in Logan Square, but Church in the Square. And uh, a couple of things going on with that. Our partners are in the middle of transition, so some are becoming partners at other park locations. Others are about to go through our first membership class of Church in the Square, which is really exciting. Um, And so just prayers for that, prayers for continued understanding, peace, grace conversation and unity for God's church. That, that class is happening for existing park members or park partners on June 24th, so next Sunday, 5 p.m. at Armitage. More information should have been emailed to you if you signed up for that class. Partners that have not responded to that email yet that went out June 1st, shame on you. The Lord knows. The Lord knows, and so does our Excel spreadsheet. It also tells us Um, We'd love for you to respond to that. If for whatever reason you're still thinking, praying, we'd love to know that too. But please, no matter what your story or situation, respond to that so that we know what's going on, so that we know how the Lord's been speaking, directing, guiding you. We'd love to walk through that with you. With that being said, we're going to jump in to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start our our time in Acts chapter 2 by considering Genesis 11, And Genesis 11 is a story of the Tower of Babel. It's the very beginning of the human story, and humans had a really bad idea. And it's a bad idea we thought was a really good idea ever since. The idea was let's all get together, sort of unified by a singular language, let's get together and build a city. 
Let's not spread out. Let's combine resources. Let's combine intellect and power. And let's build a city for the end result of building a tower within that city that would reach up to God. In fact, those original humans are quoted as saying, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's gather together, build a great city and a great tower. Let's make a name for ourselves so that this tower would reach all the way up to the heavens. Now, perhaps you and I, centuries later, would just go, that's a terrible idea. It's doomed to failure. You can't get together and be better than God. The problem is, is we do that regularly. We may not be doing it in brick and mortar, but we do that in our hearts on the regular. And so the story of the Tower of Babel is deeply instructive for us as human beings. Let's get together and make a name for ourselves. Build something that reaches up to God. And here's what I'm getting at. The Tower of Babel cements for humanity what religion is. The Tower of Babel cements for humanity what religion is. It's men and women making their way to God. Men and women achieving their way, working their way to God. Never anywhere in Scripture, I think, is there a more concrete and clear illustration of what religion is. Let's make a name for ourselves by reaching up to God, by surpassing the place where God dwells. The brilliance of God shows up as they're still building. They must have had conversations like, can you believe how high this thing is, Brad? Sally, did you see what new height we got to today? It's above the fog. It's bigger than any tree. This is incredible. And right in the middle of them building and thinking, wow, what a name we'll have for themselves, the text tells us that God comes down to look at their tower. Don't you love that? God comes down. It's this wonderful dose of irony in the ancient text that they thought they went so high and God still has to come way down even to see it. And yet in the midst of that irony, there's brilliance of grace. There's a brilliant move of God's grace that reveals to us his character. That when we're trying to reach up to God, God is the one who comes down and meets us where we are. That God is the one who meets us right where we are. And a consequence for their sin, the Lord scatters them and confuses their language. Confuses their language, reveals to them that ultimately it's not about them making a name for themselves. It's about him and his glory. In fact, this was the whole point of creation in the first place that God's people would be fruitful and multiply and scatter all over the world, not so their name would be great and glorious, but so that the glory of God would exist all over the face of his creation. This is what Acts chapter 2 will be all about. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your word. We thank you that we don't have to be a people that wonder about morality, that just have questions about what is good, what is right, that we don't have to just trust our feelings and our invisible inclinations to know who we are or what to do, but that you very graciously have spoken to us through your word. And so help us, God, to be a people who listen. Honestly, many of us have spent this entire week not listening. Honestly, many of us this week have looked to so many other places for wisdom, and it's left all of us thirsty. It hasn't satisfied God. 
And so forgive us for those pursuits. Forgive us for that folly, foolishness, and sinfulness. And help us now in this moment to be centered, anchored in your word because where your word is, there is life. Where your word is, there is truth, there is joy, there is beauty, there's goodness. And so, God, we submit ourselves to your word, myself included. I'm not above this word. I'm not next to this word. We are all submitting, surrendering ourselves to the word of God. Because where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. And so we ask for your help in this, Lord. We ask that you would help us to see incredible things that we cannot on our own. For your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 120 people are gathered in Jerusalem, and they're gathered and they're waiting. They're they're eager, they're curious. They want to know what's next because they know that Jesus, who had just ascended, and imagine still trying to deal with that. Imagine still trying to deal with your friend, your leader, your rabbi, your teacher, the Messiah and Lord, died, rose from the dead, and then ascended, literally, physically ascended, taken up by a cloud, then disappeared. You've got a lot that you're dealing with. You dealt with a guy who was dead and now is alive. You've got a guy that that was alive that appeared to you and taught about the kingdom of God. And then that same guy who was dead and is now alive now disappeared in a cloud. You have a lot of things you're working out. And so you and I would have been huddled in an upper room trying to go, what in the world is going on? Literally the only thing I imagine that they knew for sure was that one, God is amazing. And sort of along with that, God therefore told us, Jesus told us to wait. And so if someone rose from the dead and then ascended, you're going to listen to what they say because they have a handle on reality. They have a handle on this world. And so Jesus says, wait. And they knew that they were waiting because he was going to send the helper. He was going to send the spirit of God. But what does that even mean? to the first century Jewish context that had never really experienced God as this helper who comes to reside with his people. What the people of God knew to this point was that the Spirit came in for moments and he came in for specific purposes. That the Spirit of God moved in people, but the Spirit of God never dwelled and remained with people in the way that one day he would. And so they're wondering, they're, they're curious, they have questions, they're huddled together, they're unified. And verse one in chapter two gives us the next movement of the story as they are still waiting. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were all together on this particular day called Pentecost. Pentecost is the day 50 days after Passover. Passover, if you remember, is the day that Jews celebrate to this day where the Spirit of God passed over the houses of Israelites in ancient Egypt when they were in captivity because they marked the door with blood. And if the the door was marked with blood, the Spirit of God passed over. But where there was no blood, particularly an Egyptian household, the Spirit of God took the life of the firstborn son as the plague and consequence of Pharaoh's arrogance and rebellion against God. And it was God's deliverance, God's faithfulness, therefore, that they celebrated on Passover. They remembered that God is a faithful God. They remembered that God is a God who is true to his word, that God is mighty, that God is powerful, that there is no one like our God. One of the things I love about the Jewish traditions are these dates of memory, these dates of recalling and recounting who God is and what he has done. We would do well, church, to remember and recall on a regular who God is and what he has done, not what is God going to do next. 
See, we often have an infatuation about what God is going to do tomorrow and the next day in my life and for me, and we neglect the way that God has revealed himself in history. My brother, my sister, my friend, in order to understand what God will do next, you must understand what he has already achieved. In order to understand who God is and how he will reveal himself in the future, we must understand what he has already done, how he has already revealed himself. And so the people of God gathered regularly once a year at Passover to remember that day, to remember that moment where God freed us, where God passed over our door, where God protected us, healed us, and loved us. God is faithful to his word. Now, Pentecost is 50 days later. 50 days after Passover. And Pentecost was a day for them to remember not only of God's faithfulness, but to respond in generosity to God and giving him the first fruits, known as the, the Feast of Weeks. This, this first fruits gift was given to God as commemoration of his faithfulness, as a gratitude of his faithfulness. And so it's on this particular day that the people of God are gathered, and it's so perfect that they're gathered waiting for God to respond, waiting for God to show up on a day when they are remembering that God is true to his word, that God is a faithful God. And so here they are gathered together waiting on this particular day, waiting for God to show up, and then he does. Look at verse 2, and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance." So before the writer, Luke, gives us clarity about who God is and what he has done, he begins to give us this illustration or picture of what they're experiencing. I love this about Luke's writing. He doesn't just say the Spirit of God came and they started speaking in other languages as the Spirit of God taught them. He was like, it was like a wind that came into the house. And it was like fire that was over their heads that resided or rested over them. And these two pictures of God's Spirit are perfectly in line with the heritage of Scripture and the way that God shows up. First, he says that God comes like a rushing wind. Notice it doesn't say that they saw something. They were experiencing, they were hearing this wind. Wind falls in perfect line with the heritage of Scripture and communicating who God is because wind and breath in Greek and Hebrew is the very same root word in both of those languages as the word spirit in both of those languages. And so when we see Job and his story and God speaking to Job through a whirlwind, we're getting a whisper of God showing up in this way. When God breathes life into Adam, when he breathes in his nostrils, we're getting this whisper of the work of the Spirit of God. When Ezekiel calls out to the Lord and says, Lord, breathe life into these dry bones, we get a whisper of the Spirit of God dwelling with the people of God. And when John the Baptist says that you will be baptized very soon, that this wind, this Spirit will come upon you, not simply baptizing with water. See, this anticipation of God's spirit is not merely something that Luke is coming up with here. It's the consistent habit of how God shows up in power, in truth, and in spirit, in bringing purity. But not only that, also in fire. 
These tongues divide, as Luke writes it, as of fire residing over the heads of the people. Can you imagine what this is like, right? You're like, I read this story. This is interesting. It's in the Bible. Wind, like a mighty rushing wind comes in, and now fire. You would be a little bit like, this is not what we expected. What's going on? God said he would be prompt. I didn't know. I didn't know to expect this. So fire over their heads. This is the way that God directed his people. If you remember, as they came out of captivity and wandered in the wilderness, God guided them in a pillar of cloud during the day, but in fire by night. If you remember, Moses takes off his sandals and walks on holy ground when a bush is burning but not fully consumed. John also said, John the Baptist also said that God would baptize us in fire, that one would be coming to baptize you not just with water but with wind and fire. Not only so, but this picture of fire is recounted by the writer of Hebrews as saying that God is a consuming fire meant to be worshipped with awe and wonder. Do you see that God is showing up in a fresh way, but he is not showing up in a way that is inconsistent with his character? God is not showing up in a new way that ultimately is a departure from who he is. It is a fresh way of revealing who he has always and will forever be. I wonder if you just need that reminder this morning. That the God who was is the God who is is the God who will ever be. The way that God has shown up in history is the way that God promises to continue to show up for his people. We don't have to wonder, will God be faithful? We don't have to wonder what God is like. If you are anxious about tomorrow, get familiar with the history of how God has been faithful to his people always. See, fear creeps in when we forget who God is. Fear creeps in when we forget who God is. And so here are the people of God experiencing afresh what all people of God experience, God being true to his word. He shows up in wind. He shows up in fire. But now more particularly, we see that he shows up in the person of the Holy Spirit and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the manifestation or the, the picture of that filling is they begin to speak. They begin to speak. And, and this is brilliant. This is so brilliant because God created everything by doing what? Speaking. Jesus comes as the incarnate what? Word of God. The Spirit of God now comes to apply the work of Jesus upon the people of God. And what's the first response to the presence of the Spirit of God? They start talking. The word of God endures forever, even though it is expressed in creation by the very mouth of God, and it's expressed in the gospel by the incarnation, and now expressed in the church through the spirit of God speaking through the people of God. All of it is his word by his power and by his grace. They begin to speak. They begin to utter and say different things in different languages. They begin to speak in such a way as the Holy Spirit gives them utterance. Oh, that that would be said of us, that they were a people who only spoke what the Spirit of God told them to say. See, the issue with religion, the issue with the church is that we keep saying things that God is not saying. We keep talking about stuff that, that are words of our own invention, not words of the Spirit of God. Am I preaching to you yet? That we are really good at using our own words, our own ideas, our own control based on our own fear and our own pride as opposed to being submissive to the Spirit of God and speaking only what He says, speaking only His words. 
So as they are filled, as they are overwhelmed, the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God, and nobody knows what to do. Look at verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven, and at the sound of the multitude came together. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. Notice this, that this sound comes. Now, we're not sure if the sound is people speaking or if they, they, they heard the wind coming. We're not positive. Luke is not clear about what that particular sound is, but we do well to assume probably both of those things lended to the sound that people are now hearing. And so instead of walking on with their day, they stop and they begin to gather together. They're drawn in by the work of God. And what is most amazing is that they understand the words. Even though they are amazed, they are bewildered, they have comprehension. And here's why they were amazed. Look at verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. Look at this, this collection of people, Parthians and Midas and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They, they paint a brilliant picture for us. They, this, this multitude gathers and they say, aren't all of these people from the same place? Aren't they all Galileans? And yet they're speaking in these different kinds of languages and we all understand them in our own languages. Represented in this collection were the two major empires, the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. These collections of people all belonging to those two particular groups are empires. And so represented in that is a lot of different cultures, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different nationalities, ethnicities, and languages. Not only that, there are Jews, but there are also proselytes. And those folks are non-Jews who have converted into Judaism. Now, converting into Judaism, particularly for adults, was quite challenging because if you were a man, it meant you needed to be circumcised, you needed to be baptized with witnesses, and you needed to make a gift in the temple in order to become a part of the Jews. So we have people who have walked through significant stories of transformation and conversion in order to be a part of this moment. And you notice the tension, I think, that is taking place here. There's incredible confusion but there's also incredible understanding. The understanding is I know what you're saying, but the confusion is I have no idea how this is happening. Are you tracking with that? I know what you're saying. You're talking about the mighty works of God. Tell me more. This is incredible. But how in the world is this going on because you're not supposed to speak that language, right? Oh, that more people who would interact with us would feel that way. I know what you're saying, but where's this wisdom coming from? Where is this understanding coming from? Where is this faith, humility, joy, peace, patience, goodness, generosity, self-control? Where is all of that coming from? People would say that about us. Words that are coming out of your mouth, I just don't understand how. Oh, that people would say that about us, church. I know what you're saying. It just doesn't make sense how you do that. Let me tell you how they did that. I think it's pretty clear it's the spirit of the living God. 
It's the spirit of the living God. See, one of our great issues as Christians is we have a really good explanation for our holiness. I'll never forget one time one of my neighbors asked me, they said, you live a little bit differently. Can you help me understand why? I said, well, my parents, you know, they were raised in the South, and so, like, I've got to tuck in my khaki pants, and I've got to, like, say yes, sir, and no, ma'am. There was this incredible opportunity to say, can I tell you why I'm different? It's because Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, rose me from the dead. Instead, I point to Southern culture. We come up with all kinds of other reasons why we have been changed and why people notice transformation in our lives to our shame. If anybody notices anything about you that they understand, but at the same time they don't, that's the spirit of the living God. I think one of the reasons that we don't give the spirit of God enough credit is because we don't know how the spirit of God works. Because we don't understand how the spirit of God works. In fact, many of us, 21st century, maybe you identify evangelical, Christian, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving person. You go, I'm with Jesus, but I don't know about the Holy Spirit. Right? Too often within our sort of modern evangelical hashtag Christianity, we don't know what to do with the Spirit of God. And I think ultimately the Scriptures, particularly Acts, help us to understand who He is. What we've already understood in Acts, and as we understand throughout all of Scripture, is that God, the Trinity, the Godhead, and all three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, are all active, not only in all of creation and the entire story, but particularly in the Gospel. See, what the Father architects as the plan of the gospel, the Son applies in the work of the gospel, or or rather achieves in the work of the gospel, and the Spirit applies through the power of the gospel. Let me say that again because I think it's helpful for us to understand how the Godhead, all three persons of the Trinity, one God yet three, are completely operative, completely at work, yet uniquely at work within the gospel. What the Father architects, what He plans, and what He architects and designs The Son, Jesus Christ, achieves through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension that then the Spirit applies. The Father architects, the Son achieves, and the Spirit applies. See, if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, if Jesus does not ascend, then he is merely as human as God in one place at one time, able to do the work of ministry where he is. But when he ascends, the Spirit of God is going to come and be the detonator, if you will, of the gospel, applying the power of the gospel to all who would believe. And so in a brilliant way, by Jesus ascending, he is with us even more than when he was physically on earth. See, many of us long for those days when Jesus walked on the earth, but it seemed fitting to God to have Jesus only walk this earth for about three decades and then ascend and give us the brilliant gift of the Spirit of God. And so what the Father architects, the Son achieves, and the Spirit applies. So let's talk about that application. Let's talk about how the Spirit applies the work of God to the people of God in four different assignments, four different roles. The first is that the Spirit of God reveals. The Spirit of God reveals truth. When you open up this word and try to figure it out, you will not do it very well. You ever felt like that? You open it up and go, I don't know what to do with Paul. He seems angry but talks about grace a lot. Help me with that. I don't understand. I don't know what to do with like Jephthah in Judges 11 and why he like had this sacrifice and this vow, right? It's really hard to figure it out on your own. What we need is the Holy Spirit's help to reveal truth. What far too often we do is when we read the scriptures and can't figure out, we just go, all right, what do I think? 
What does my friend think? Let's go with some wisdom that's recognizable to me. Remember in James, we talked about the difference between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. In James chapter 3, when the wisdom from above feels difficult or hard to understand, we resort to the wisdom from below because in the short term, it feels much easier to comprehend. But what the Spirit of God does is He reveals truth. And so when we find it difficult to understand His Word, we should not get, give up. We should get on our knees and pray. We should ask, Spirit of God, help me understand. Open my eyes to what I cannot see. Help me to understand what is beyond my comprehension. Even coming to our small groups and saying, help, how has the Lord directed your understanding about this particular decision that I'm going to make? How has the Lord helped you to understand? See, we expose ourselves into biblical community because the Spirit of God dwells within the people of God, right? We trust the Spirit of God when we allow Him to reveal truth to us. But He doesn't just reveal truth. The Spirit of God also empowers the church, empowers the church. Have you ever felt weak? Have you ever felt like you didn't have what it took? If not, I wonder what you're doing with your life. Because I think consistently when you're following Jesus, your weaknesses are inevitably exposed. It's actually his kindness to expose your weakness because then your weakness will inform your worship, right? So he, he exposes our weaknesses and in that moment, we have a decision to make. When my weakness is exposed, I can either act like it's not there, act like it's not a big deal, I can try to muscle my way through it, or I can look for a different source of power. I can look for a different source of power. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul wrestles through this, right? He says, I have this thorn in the flesh. Three times I've prayed, Lord, take it from me. You ever prayed that prayer? Just take this away. I'm not trying to get stronger. I'm not trying to have more faith. I just need the drama to stop. I just need the pain to stop. And so Paul wrestles in a deeply human way in that. But in his wrestling, he realizes that in his weakness, the power of Christ is made perfect. In his weakness, he's actually made strong when he rests in the Spirit of God. See, the Spirit of God reveals truth to the church, and the Spirit of God empowers the church to accomplish the will of God. See, if God only communicated his will for us, it would be overwhelming and it would kill us. But by his grace, what he wills, he empowers us to accomplish. So we can never say to the Lord, that's too much for me. I don't think you understand. I can't accomplish. I cannot obey. He gives you the Spirit of God to help you to know the truth and to obey the truth through his power. Thirdly, not only does he reveal truth, not only does he empower us as the church, but he also purifies us. He also purifies us. And what that means that, he purifies, that the Spirit of God purifies the church is that he grows us more and more through the gospel. See, if you're saved by grace, you will be washed and constantly transformed by grace. It is constantly a work that he does where more and more the trappings of this world no longer lay hold of me, but now I begin to take on the fruit of the Spirit mapped out in Galatians 5, right? Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. As we take these things on more and more, we actually are purified because in our fallenness, we don't desire those things. We don't live in those things. But by the Spirit of God, as He washes us and makes us clean, we now live a life of holiness. More than that, I wonder if your guilty past has ever caught up with you. If you've said things like, I, I, 
I know that the Lord has forgiven me, but I cannot forgive myself. That we carry our sin and we carry our shame, perhaps from our previous romantic relationships, perhaps from the way that we raised our children, perhaps from the ways that our parents raised us. What the Spirit of God does when we rely on Him is He cleanses us of a guilty conscience. He washes us clean. And so if you've ever wrestled with guilt and shame, you don't need to work harder. You don't need night classes. You need the Spirit of God to wash you clean. That does not mean that you don't need community and you don't need to walk with professionals in particular ways, but what it does mean is that the power for purification is in the Spirit of God, not earthly wisdom. See, God God the Spirit reveals truth to the church. God the Spirit empowers the church. God the Spirit purifies the church. And fourthly, God the Spirit unifies the church. We, We should be able, by God's grace, more and more to look around the room and say, there is no way any of us should ever hang out except for Jesus, right? There's no way, different ethnicities, different languages, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic stories, right? Different vocations, different habits, different, different sports teams. I know, I know, right? Even that, that the Lord brings together within the church all kinds of people that the world says are divided, bifurcated, should live in different neighborhoods and different classes and speak different languages and be with different people. The Spirit of God binds us together through the powerful work of Jesus that you and I become one in Christ. That you and I don't just become one with the Father, we become one with one another. Nothing else does that. Every other Wisdom of this world gets different people in close proximity. They may work for the same company, but they are not truly unified because what divides them must be conquered by the cross, not by really great work habits, right? Not by bottom line. See, our companies that we work for may desire for a multiplicity of people to be together, but simply for a different kind of good, simply for a different kind of goal. It is only the Spirit of God that truly makes you and I brothers and sisters, makes us a family. Every other unity is a facsimile of that because Jesus is the only one who deals with what divides us. Therefore, the Spirit of God can apply the work of the gospel with the people of God because he has championed what has been a dividing wall of hostility. This is what the Spirit of God does. We don't give him enough credit. The Spirit of God purifies the church. The Spirit of God unifies the church. The Spirit of God empowers the church. And the Spirit of God reveals truth to the church. And so this is what these guys, these gals were trying to understand, what they were amazed by, what they were experiencing as all of these people gathered together and they were experiencing a particular kind of power, a particular kind of experience that they had no way of fully understanding. See, when we're a church that is filled by the Spirit, we grow in purity with one another. When we are a church that is filled with the Spirit, we grow in unity with one another. When we are a church that is filled with the Spirit, we are empowered to do the work, the will of God together. When we're a church that's filled with the Spirit of God, we see and discern and even enjoy His truth. Regretfully, though, we are not a people who fill ourselves or who are filled with the Spirit often or trust and rely in the reality that we are filled with the Spirit. A lot of times the church has this dormant power and we can explain all of the earthly successes of our church without need to bring up the name of the Holy Spirit. 
because we're relying on a different kind of power. We're relying on a different kind of empowerment, a different kind of truth, a different kind of unity, a different kind of purity. And at this point in the message, I think that it's helpful regularly to help us understand why we don't believe the truth of the scriptures. I don't do this because all of us believe and think the exact same way. I do this because at the end of the day, none of us live in light of the scriptures. And we need to understand that the application point is now go be filled with the spirit, but it actually, we need to get down deeper. We need to understand why do we not trust the spirit of God? Because that's the issue. The issue is not, okay, now that I've preached it, we've read about it in the Bible, go therefore and do it. The problem is we're like, "Ah, I just don't, I don't trust him. I don't trust that he does all of this. I don't trust that it's all good for me. And here's why. Can I preach to you for just a second for your joy and mine? Whether you've just given me permission or not, I'm going to step forward in faith. I think we trust control more than we trust the Spirit of God. What I mean by that is that we trust our own ability more than the Spirit of God. We trust control. And what control really is, it's it's a statement of fear. The statement of fear is that my way, my will will not be accomplished in my family, in my work, in in my finances, in my relationships, in my church. And so because I don't trust that those things will be accomplished, I am going to exert my will on somebody else or on something else in order to make sure that my will be done, right? It is a fear that I will be lost in the decisions or powers of others, the will of others, and so we exert ourselves in that particular situation, not to be unified, not to be purified, not to allow truth to be revealed, or us to be empowered by the Spirit, but ultimately we be empowered by our own faculties. See, the lie underneath this fear is that my motives are pure, or at least best for everybody else, right? I'm seeing this situation clearly, and so y'all get on the the boat with me, get on the same page with me, and I will lead us to the promised land, right? Parents, can I get an amen? If our children would just understand, we've got it all figured out, and they just need to follow us, it will go well, and they would have a long and happy life, right? We love control. Even now, you're like, no, I don't. Ha! Ha! I got you. You love control, and so do I. We trust it. We love it. We, we want to just be nestled up in it like a slanket. We love control. We don't want to leave anything to chance. We want to take everything up in our own power. This is one of the most prideful things we do on a regular basis. One of the most prideful things that we do Because ultimately, control does not work. Control leads to confusion. Because if we're all seeking after control and no one is submitting, then no one is listening to God. And that always leads to our demise. It also leads to confusion in our demise because your motives and my motives are not pure, nor are they best. And so if we are always fully in control, it leads to some pretty scary places. It leads to our death. See, what control is, is the habitual and sinful announcement that we believe, the disbelief that God is not enough and God will not show up. Seeking control is the constant habitual and sinful belief that God will not show up and that God is not enough. Therefore, I need to fill in the gaps of God's forgetfulness or God's fakeness. 
because he's not enough. See, friends, one of, one of my greatest desires as your pastor is that we understand that we don't just have bad habits. We have sinful, idolatrous sins in our heart that grip us. See, control is not a bad habit. Control is idolatry. Control is saying, I want to be God. Control is saying that I'm in charge. Control is saying, I'm not going to trust the filling of the Spirit of God to accomplish the will, my will, but I'm actually going to trust in myself. And when we begin to admit that, we see the beauty of the gospel jump off the page for us. Because you see, Jesus is the one who is fully, completely empowered, completely in control, completely pure, completely unified with his Father, and he steps into a place where he allows the will of others to put him on the cross. He willfully allows the will of others to put him on the cross, to nail him to the cross. He gives them control to kill him. He gives away control in order that others would kill him and that he would die in our place and for our sins. And so what this means is that the power of control that grips you no longer needs to grip you. It no longer needs to have power over you. Why? Because through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, his literal burial, his victorious resurrection, and his authoritative ascension, Jesus therefore then sends the Spirit of God to give you a new spirit that dwells within your heart by grace through faith. You and I can say no now to the invisible inclinations of control, pride, arrogance, and greed and allow the Spirit of God to fill us up, to purify us, to unify us, to empower us, and to reveal truth for us. And we desperately need this. We desperately need this because look how people are going to respond to you and I. Look at verse 12 and 13. We desperately need to lay down control and allow the Spirit of God to fill us because here's what happens. Look at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They are filled with new wine. Two different people respond here, or rather two different kinds of people respond here. When God fills the church, when reveals truth to the church, when God empowers the church, when God purifies the church, when God unifies the church by his spirit, people will ask questions. They'll say, what does this mean? And if we are constantly, consistently looking at ourselves and explaining things away in an earthly manner, we'll have answers that they have heard before from other organizations, from other people, from other walks of life. But when we simply are able to confess through the Spirit of the living God, God is at work in our church doing what only He can do, applying the powerful work of Jesus on uh, His behalf, by His power on us that will give him credit, honor, and glory. When we take control, we want credit, right? When we know it's the Spirit of God, we glorify him, right? And so we need not be frightened even about the answers. We're not supposed to have all the answers. We're supposed to be surrendered to the Spirit of God. You're not supposed to be a person who has all the answers. You're supposed to be a person who is surrendered to the Spirit of God. See, he'll reveal truth to you when people ask these questions. He'll reveal truth to me when people ask these questions. But there's a different group, maybe a group that you and I are a bit more fearful of, but others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Now, another rendering of new wine is sweet wine, and so what they're accusing them of is rosé all day, right? They're, they're accusing them of this, and it's only 9 a.m. 
This is the accusation. They begin to mock them, saying, this must be something else because this is just weird. Now, if we are fully in control, we should be embarrassed and feel compromised. But if the Spirit of God is in control, we know that He'll protect us, that He will keep us, that He will hold us and empower us and and purify us even when accusations come. See, the story of the Tower of Babel is so problematic for us because it tells our story. That you and I desire to make a name for ourselves, building a tower by our own control, by our own merit, so that one day we will have a name and people will look at the work that we have done and say, wow, what a church. Wow, what a pastor. Wow, what a people. What an employee. What a boss. What a mom. What a dad. What a brother. What a sister. They would look to us. And that deeply is broken in our hearts. It's deep desire in our hearts. But it also is the rejection of God's will and word. See, God said to his people, be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. Scatter all over the world and make my name known. It's here at Pentecost where we actually see God's redemptive kindness to us. Because you see, at the Tower of Babel, God came down. You see, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ came down. And here, as the church is about to be built, what does God do? God comes down. So for whatever reason, you believe that you need to take up control. You remember, sister. You remember, brother, that our God is a God who always shows up by grace. That our God is a God who always gives you what you need by grace. He always comes down to meet us right where we are. Are. And when he does that, and when a church is surrendered to that, people are going to go, what in the world is going on? And people may have all kinds of mockery and accusation for us, but we can simply do what the Spirit of God compels us to do, which is to trust him, just to surrender and submit ourselves to him, that we would be a people filled up by the Spirit of God who applies the power of the gospel to us, that we would know the truth that we would be empowered by God, that we would be purified by the Spirit of God, that we would be united by the Spirit of God no matter what anybody says. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you because it's great hope for us. It's great hope for us knowing that our control is foolishness and folly and ends in our demise but your power is made perfect in weakness. That your power demonstrated through your spirit unifies us, purifies us, gives us truth, reveals truth to us, and it empowers us as your people to accomplish your will. So God, we confess our sins of pride and of control. We confess that we have not trusted you to show up. We confess that we have not trusted you to be enough. And so transform us, make us a people filled by your spirit to do incredible things that people have to ask what in the world is going on at that church? What in the world is going on in that family? What in the world is going on in that dating relationship? What in the world is going going on in those children? What's going on in the workplace? What's going on in Logan Square? And we we wouldn't say, remember our name, because we did it. Say, remember the name of Jesus, who through the spirit of God has done what only he could do. So we give you all the glory. All the credit, all the honor.